Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorsed, and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I have a new segment on my Tuesday episodes called Read-Alike Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes if you would like to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including bonus episodes and early reads with prepub author chats. For March, there are two books, Colleen Oakley's new book, The Mostly True Story of Tanner and Louise, and Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Lynn Cullen about The Woman with the Cure. Lynn grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and is the best-selling author of The Sisters of Summit Avenue, Twain's End, and Mrs. Poe, which was named an NPR 2013 Great Read and an Indie Next List selection. She lives in Atlanta with her husband, their dog, and two cats. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now for this week's read-alike request segment. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we love really stick with us, and that is what I want to tap into, the aspects of the book that appeal to the requester, and to focus on finding those elements in other books. Today's request is from Jada, who is at The History Mom on Instagram, and she selected The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare by Kimberly Brock. What happened to the lost colony of Roanoke remains a mystery, but Brock decides to imagine a story based on Eleanor Dare and her descendants. Jada enjoyed the book because she found it to be a fascinating historical mystery. It was atmospheric and had a great sense of place, plus it had rich historical detail. She would like to find more historical fiction books that have a puzzle at their heart. I love historical fiction, so I'm always happy when somebody's asking for a read-alike in that genre. My first recommendation is Time's Undoing by Cheryl Head which comes out next week. Time's Undoing is about a young Black journalist's search for answers in the unsolved murder of her great-grandfather in segregated Birmingham, Alabama, decades ago, and it is inspired by the author's own family history. It is a dual-timeline narrative that takes place mainly in Birmingham in 1929 and 2019, 
and Head really brings the city to life in both time periods. I truly felt like I was transported to Birmingham, and I learned so much about the city both then and now. There is a mystery at the heart of the story, and the way the tale unfolds is just so well done. I think it is a great read-alike for The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare. My next recommendation is Lady in the Lake by Laura Lippman, a story set in 1960s Baltimore amid the social turmoil and strife of the era. Lippman's tale unfolds through the perspective of numerous characters, each chapter tied to some small portion of the last chapter, as the main character slowly works to solve a cold case. This is another book with an incredibly strong sense of place, something Jada enjoyed about the lost book of Eleanor Dare, and it also contains a mystery at the heart of the story. Both the book's format and the mystery's resolution are really creative. The last book I am recommending as a read-alike is The Cottingly Secret by Hazel Gaynor. Gaynor turns the clock back 100 years to a time when two young girls from Cottingly, Yorkshire, convinced the world that they had done the impossible and photographed fairies in their garden. I have always been completely fascinated with the actual events upon which this book is based, and Gaynor does a wonderful job of reimagining their tale. This is a great read-alike for Eleanor Dare because both authors base their stories on historical events with puzzles at the heart of them, and The Cottingly Secret is another book with a very strong sense of place and time. Before I finish, I want to quickly mention a few others. Patty Callahan Henry has a new book coming out in May entitled The Secret Book of Flora Lee, which is also a great read-alike for Eleanor Dare, about two sisters who are separated during World War II and the mystery that surrounds one of them. There are also two historical mystery series that I want to highlight that both have strong settings, the Maggie Hope series by Susan Aliyah McNeil and the Maisie Dobbs series by Jacqueline Winspear. I think both of these fit Jada's criteria very well, including being very atmospheric and full of rich historical detail. Thanks, Jada, for submitting a read-alike request, and I hope you and everyone else enjoys these recommendations. And now, on to my conversation with Lynn Cullen. Welcome, Lynn. How are you today? I am great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well as well, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about The Woman with the Cure. Me too. For those that won't have read it yet, I would love for you to give me a quick synopsis of The Woman with the Cure to start out. The Woman... With the Cure is about the race for the polio vaccine. It takes place mostly in the 50s. And most people know about Salk and Sabin, the two doctors who are head-to-head fighting for the cure for the vaccine. But actually, there were a lot of influential women in the race. And I have singled in on the most important woman and fascinating woman, Dorothy Horseman, and her role in beating polio. And what a timely story, which we will talk about in just a little bit. But before we do that, I would love to hear how you learned about Dorothy Horseman and then how you became invested enough in her story to write about it. Well, I walk every Friday with a friend, Karen Turgaley, who was at the time the oral historian for the CDC. And she was always telling me these cool stories about pioneers in epidemiology and public health, you know, people who changed the world. And the one story I really loved was about the race for the vaccine between Salk and Sabin. And, you know, these guys are terrible characters. They're they're each uh, very eccentric and amusing in their own ways and, of course, brilliant. But the whole time I was hearing this and thinking, well, one, I was thinking, I've got to write a story about this. This is so fascinating. But the other thought was, I have to do it from a woman's point of view. Where are the women? And actually, Karen didn't have much in the way of leads for me about, you know, a woman who could carry this story. So I had to do a lot of digging. And 
I got on the track of Dorothy Horseman really from just some online websites. There's very little about her in books. And I tracked her down. And when I looked up some pictures in Life magazine from 1944, she was instrumental in what was called the Miracle of Hickory, because this was a horrible outbreak in um, Hickory, North Carolina. And they quickly built a hospital, staffed it, and turned the outbreak around in like seven days' time. So she was part of this. And this Life magazine had these pictures of this very tall woman taking blood samples from children and um, hanging out in the tent. You know, they, the people lived in tents. The doctors, I should say, lived in tents. And they also took in their admissions in tents. This very makeshift. And this woman kept appearing in it. Uh, this very tall woman, as I said. And that was Dorothy Horseman. And just seeing her made me fall in love with her. And I found out that the reason she's in these pictures so much is she was part of the Yale Polio Study Group which is actually just a flying unit that was sent around the world whenever there was a polio outbreak. So Dorothy was like the key person in this for several decades. And so she, maybe more than anyone else in the world, had this firsthand knowledge of what a polio epidemic looked like, what an outbreak looked like. Definitely, boots on the ground. I was fascinated that Every time there was an outbreak, this group traveled to the outbreak. I guess that was something I didn't know and I wasn't familiar with, and I thought it was really interesting. Yes. Well, they were trying to figure out what caused it and how to contain it. And the, the real catch with polio is that it lasted about 40 years. It started in 1916, the um, outbreaks began, and it was only in the summertime, though that could be around, the, you know, summertimes around the world <laughs> all year, of course. What I thought was really interesting was that you decided to write about the race for the polio vaccine just months before COVID hit. Was that just crazy to be trying to write this story while we're living through another pandemic? I thought at first, at least that might be helpful in writing the book. I started the book before the, uh, the outbreak began. In fact, I was sheltering place that summer when I read that on December 31st, 2019 is when it was announced to the WHO that there was this outbreak. That was the day I finally put pen to paper, very first day I started writing the book. So that kind of freaked me out a little bit, that coincidence. But as far as writing about it, I thought, okay, this will, this will show me how it felt. Because um, with polio, the only thing they had was isolation. And that's the only thing we had was isolation. They didn't know how it worked. And, and we didn't know how COVID worked. So, you know, I could feel their fear. And just imagine having that fear every summer for 40 years. And it actually got worse as the decades went on. By the 50s, tens of thousands of children and young adults, babies, were paralyzed each summer, and thousands more were killed. So I could begin to understand their fear by living through it. But I would have rather have not had that authenticity. <laughs> well, of course not. I like the way you started the story during World War II, because that kind of threw me for a loop, because we obviously haven't lived during a time when polio was a problem, or I haven't. So I don't ever think about it being any time but the 1950s. And of course, I knew it was because FDR contracted it in the 20s. 
So I just hadn't connected it all up, but I loved that you juxtaposed the war and the polio and that they were both happening at the same time. Because I think sometimes when we look back at history and we read certain stories, you're just getting this tiny sliver of what's happening. And so I like that you put it in the context of the major event that was happening in the world. Yes. And and what actually forced that in, in my uh, story st- structure is that um, Dorothy started her work in 1941. That's when she joined the um, Yale. Well, actually, I even start before that when she was in medical school. So, you know, polio was, yes, going on at that time. And I think that the research for polio really uh, was set back by the war. All the main researchers were, um, like the male researchers, were sent overseas. Dorothy stayed home, stayed with the polio study unit, kept on with that, and cobbled together other jobs because, you know, so many men were overseas. But many of the scientists had to turn their labs and their work to diseases that were affecting the soldiers. So the war really set things back by five years, I'd say, which is a, a pity because as I, as I mentioned, it, polio just got worse and worse with time to the point where in the 50s, um, there's only one thing more feared than polio, and that was nuclear war. And you know how everybody was in their uh, little shelters and we had our air drills at school, air raid drills at school. And people were just as freaked out about polio. Rightly so, because it affected children. That was the most cruel thing about it. I think that's why I associate it with the 1950s, though, is because I think that's what you hear about, how terrified people were. And I guess, as you said, it got worse over time. So by the 50s, it was probably at its highest peak. Yes. But by the time I was around, you know, they had already come up with the vaccine and we were taking care of that. And so people didn't worry about polio anymore. Right. And I'm... Anxious for this book to put polio on people's radar because it dropped off simply because we have the vaccine. If we didn't have it, it would still be haunting us in front page news. But the vaccine so completely took care of it. As long as people take the vaccine, it's taken care of. It was almost completely eradicated, but it's inching back a little bit because there's been a little easing up on people getting the vaccine. And that is, that's a mistake because polio will take advantage of, of you not having immunity to it. Absolutely. Yes, I think this anti-vaxxer movement has definitely harmed a variety of vaccines and diseases that are slowly inching back. Yeah, it's, you know, when you have done the research I've done and you see, you know, how people suffered, oh gosh, you just think people just don't realize what they're doing by rejecting this tool that we have. I think that's exactly right. Well, let's talk about your research. You must have done an incredible amount of research to be able to write this book. Well, it was extra tricky because it had all the science in it. And my goal was to present the science, but completely strip down to the most basic readable chunks because I'm not a scientist. So this, this, it was very difficult for me to consolidate all the facts and still have a really, um, you know, compelling story. I wanted to keep moving forward and people not to get lost in the weeds of the, of the research. The research was also made more difficult when it came to just getting to know the people and places. 
because, you know, during COVID, you, I couldn't travel. I usually travel a lot when I do research for books. I go to, I have this thing about going to every, the setting of every scene in my books. I've traveled around the world to do that. It's sort of a game for me. Couldn't do that for this. So I relied upon Dorothy's story in places that I'd gone to. Like I had just been to Denmark the year before. That happened to be Dorothy's, one of her favorite places is Denmark. She spent a fair amount of time there. Um, she was born or she grew up rather in San Francisco. Well, I'm a bit familiar with that. And same for New York. I've spent a lot of time in New York. So I was fortunate to have these experiences since I couldn't go to the places. I love Denmark. So I was excited to see it in your book. And I thought it was really interesting, some of those other stories you wove in about Denmark and the characters. So that's one thing I love about historical fiction is you're learning something while you're reading a compelling story. And that's what I love about writing it. Certain facts will pop up and I think, oh, I just really want to share this because this is really fun. That's another game for me is how I can work things in, not interrupt the flow, but put in these fun tidbits that tickled me and I hope, you know, they'll amuse or entertain or in, instruct others. Well, I love that. Was it hard to pare down all of this information you learned into your novel? No. Uh, the hardest thing was just, again, getting the science pared down to the bare minimum so anybody could read it and not feel overwhelmed. But the story, I followed Dorothy's story, and you know that was my framework and made it easier for me to focus on the race just through her eyes. But even as I say that, I didn't focus just through her eyes, did I? I, I had these other characters in there who uh, I wanted to share the experiences of other women who were in the race. And they didn't always have obvious jobs in the race. They could just be the wife of the man who handled the lab animals, could be a secretary, could be Dorothy's mother. But everybody had their role in fighting polio, even if it was just supporting someone who was in the fight. Well, and you mentioned this in your author's note afterwards, but anytime you have a race for a cure or a scientific discovery, there's never one person working on it. There are so many and often several groups, competing groups. There are things that are built upon, such as Dorothy's discovery. So it must be hard to sort of channel all that without making sure you haven't left out an important detail somewhere in the story. But also, there's probably a lot of people that just don't even get mentioned because you can't put it all into one book. Right. And that is an important point. I'm glad you made that. Because one thing that really bothers me is that they, they call the oral polio vaccine, the Sabin vaccine, they call the, the one that's injectable, the salt vaccine, as if one guy came down from the mountain with his flask after 10 years of, you know, looking for it. Anyhow, no, it, they're, they're, it's huge teams of people. And then the people, as I was saying earlier, behind those people. It's a very broad effort. It definitely is. And I thought that you really portrayed that well, because that can be difficult. It really reaffirmed to me that that is the case. And I always find that when I'm reading these science-focused stories. And I love that, because it really does take a village. Yes. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you've pointed that out. Thank you. The other thing that I absolutely loved was that I didn't know that Candyland had been invented to entertain children hospitalized with polio. Right, right. There were several things that came about because of polio. 
one thing I mentioned there is the spraying for mosquitoes. That was partly ordered. In fact, the timing of it is totally to do with polio. Right after the war, government uh, airplanes and trucks were fitted up to, you know, blanket the world, the, the U.S., I should say, at least, in um, DDT. And I remember as a kid seeing these Fockers going down the street, um, you know, just blaring out all this toxic fog. And the kids, we, we played in it. We ran behind them because it was a cool mist, you know. We played in that. Um, and that came about because they were trying to get rid of mosquitoes, which they very early on, Dorothy's research pointed out that that didn't really stop polio. It killed the mosquitoes, but it did not affect polio transmission at all. I'm so glad you mentioned that, actually, because it stuck out to me, because now we know DDT and its effects and would not want to be sprayed by it by any stretch of the imagination. And so I just thought that was really interesting as well. And it's just so fascinating to see how these things develop, that they were spraying for mosquitoes because they were worried about polio versus just mm -hmm. getting rid of the mosquitoes and everything else they carry. But then also the DDT, and you mentioned where she steps in a DDT-laden puddle, and I'm like, oh, the whole time, you know, just like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I know, and, and, you know, people just were not cognizant of, of the damage of these things. I think she was. If you look at her report, she was uh, leery about DDT, period. But um, And I, I did an aside, I don't know if she actually said this, but she's like, if why wouldn't they test on children first, you know, the effects of DDT before spraying them in mass, you know? Thankfully, we have more safeguards in place now. And you talk about that as well, which I thought was interesting. After the initial application of the Salk vaccine, where there were some complications because things weren't handled right by one of the manufacturers, the FDA put in a lot more stringent requirements. And so it was interesting to just see how some of these things developed. Right. In fact, the FDA was really strengthened by polio with, as you mentioned, the, um, the mishap that happened with the Salk vaccine when it first came out. The FDA was really clamped down on, you know, drug trials, and in particular, on immunizations. And that's why, to this day, when people fear, you know, being harmed by an immunization, they should know that um, vaccines are the hardest thing to get through a trial, through a drug trial. They almost for a while just couldn't get vaccines through. That's why Sabin had to test his in uh, the USSR because you couldn't even test a vaccine in the US, you know, after Salk Singh. But that was a really good thing to come out of the polio vaccine is the strengthening of the FDA. I thought that was so interesting. And I thought it was completely intriguing that they were able to go to the Soviet Union and dispense 67 million vaccines to children there. And I loved your commentary on the difference, or, or maybe it was a commentary in one of the reviews, I think it was, about how different it is when you're in a dictatorship versus a democracy, but that they were able to go and, and try the vaccine there. Yes. And in fact, it's interesting, it was actually 77 million people. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a few million. Anyhow, um, 77 million people took it. And in order to, you know, test the results of this 77 million person drug trial, biggest drug trial ever, I think it still is the biggest one to this day. Anyhow, um, this was the USSR. And so they were very closed at the time, you know, during the Cold War. And so they only allowed one person 
uh, one Western scientist to go over there and evaluate this drug trial. And it was Dorothy Horseman. This shows you the WHO appointed her. It shows you how respected and how she was the top of the field in polio. And so um, she went over there and went over all the lab work and everything in a few months' time and pronounced that it was safe and effective. And so the children of the world afterward got that their sugar cube vaccine on her say-so. So essentially, uh, some of us like me had these sugar cube vaccines and we got it because Dorothy said it was okay. Based on the 77 million kids in the USSR, I think that's the craziest story. Yes. And there were young adults too. Okay. That's how they got so many people. Yes. But still, that's just pretty wild. Yes. Yes. And one woman, one woman did the, all the evaluating. Yeah. No, it is. It's just one of those things that's kind of mind boggling to think about. Yes. Will you incorporate a number of advertisements directed to women and about women during the era that you're writing about? How did you decide to do that and why? I always look at advertising in an era, especially from the really the rise of advertising with the rise of radio in the 20s on. I talked about that in my last book, Sisters of Summit Avenue. It's fascinating to me how so much of our culture has really been dictated by advertising. You know, we have our values that have been dictated to us to sell products. And so that's why I included them in this book as well. Um, it's products that kind of said a lot about what was expected of women, like the one. And, the, and I, by the way, I got these based on actual advertisements placed where I mentioned them. Like one of them was in Time magazine, one was in Life. And that one ad where it had a picture of a woman sitting at her vanity, brushing her hair in a in her slip. And she was in ice, encased in ice. She was in this ice block. And it was supposed to, you know, advertise about how cool your bedroom could be if you got this this air conditioner. But I just thought this is how they wanted women back then. They just wanted to put their women on ice. So the advertisements say so much and those that's why I wanted to slip them in. They do say so much. And I'm so glad you mentioned the Sisters of Summit Avenue because I loved that book. And that's how this one got on my radar, because once I like a book by an author, I'm always looking for what they're writing next. And so I was very happy when your name popped up attached to this one, because I was like, oh, I loved her last book. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. So what was the highlight of writing this book? You know, for me, it was, I didn't even discover it until the end. Actually, past the end, I'd finished the book and was just thinking about it. And I realized, you know, this book's about connections. It's really the whole theme, everything is about connections and how we're so connected. And I, I feel like if we only knew how connected we were, are, how connected we are, we would be kinder to each other. And when I realized that's really what this all boiled down to, and it's kind of my life philosophy, I was really excited that it all came together like that. And you highlight that in the book as well, which I really liked, the importance of being kind to each other. Yes. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, well, I read some books that have really thrilled me. I have three faves, though there are many others um, I hate to leave out, but I love Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. That was really exciting to read. First of all, it made me laugh tons. I laughed about every page. 
out loud. My husband's probably alarmed. I cried, but also it, it blew me away because it's, you know, here I wrote this book about a woman in science in the 50s and earlier, you know, it, just trying to find her or make her discovery. And um, here is uh, this fictitious character. You know, I do it with a real person in a real situation, but um, in lessons in chemistry, it's, it's this fictitious person with the same battles. And I just, I just love how the parallels. And several reviewers commented on that as well, that they thought they were great companion reads. I would sure love that. Um, and I, I certainly recommend Lessons in Chemistry. And then real quickly, I also love The Marriage Portrait. As a historical fiction writer, I, I, that book blew me away because it had so much tension in it. It was like watching this really compelling movie and, you know, just reading a book in your own bed or whatever. And also, I just love Kate Atkinson, and I loved her recent Shrines of Gaiety. I mean, her writing, she's just so much fun <laughs> to read. It, again, it's like watching a movie, but more fun because your picture in your head that she really enables you to, to picture in your head is even better than any movie you could ever see. Yeah, she writes some clever stories. I really loved Transcription, and I loved Life After Life. Yes, yes, I did too. You ought to try uh, Shrines of Gaiety. It's just a blast to read. Okay, good. Well, I love historical fiction. And that's why I always laugh about Maggie O'Farrell, because I have read all of her earlier books, but I have not read her two historical fiction books. And, you know, vice versa for me. I should try her other books. I, I've loved Hamnet. And, of course, Marriage Portrait is just amazing. I hear they're both phenomenal, and I just don't usually read back that far in time, but I need to pick them both up. You won't feel like you're reading, you know, some Renaissance, Renaissance bodice ripper, though kind of hilariously, a bodice or two is ripped, <laughs> but <laughs> it won't feel like that, I promise. <laughs> but I won't feel like it's a bodice ripper. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lynn, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and I can't wait for everybody to read The Women with the Cure. Thank you so much. It's been really great talking with you. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, 
and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.